Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week Health. Healthcare is a laggard when it came to digital transformation, but they're definitely going through that journey right now. So there's a significant investment in how do we reshape our care models? How do we embrace digital from online or home health or telemedicine? However you want to frame that up in terms of enhancing and augmenting our care provision. It's Newsday. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week Health, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First, who are our Newsday show sponsors for investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. All right, it's Newsday, and we are joined by Ryan Witt with Proofpoint the man behind the healthcare strategy for Proofpoint. Ryan, welcome. Well, good to be here. I always enjoy these conversations. We're going to look at three stories, one concept. Okay. And we're going to look at the CIO roles that are open and some of the talk about that. We're going to look at privacy, specifically around mental health apps. We have two Apple stories, one Apple that's specifically about Apple and the others Apple happens to be related to and uh, happens to be in the security area, which I always love talking to you about. Let's start with CIO roles. Okay. So this isn't a story per se, because I'm not sure outside of outside of the TMZ of healthcare, which is his talk. I'm not sure where you would find this find this story, but you have the Ascension job, the Ascension CIO. It's been confirmed to me has stepped down, so that's a significant role that's open. The Common Spirit CIO role is open. I've talked to some people who have confirmed that recruiters are looking on that one. We have Nebraska Medicine just announced this week. Brian Lancaster has taken another role to get closer to family, and that job is is open, University of Nebraska Academic Medical Center. So that's an interesting role. And then we have the Wake Forest CIO is uh, stepping down as well, another academic medical center out of North Carolina. And I'm sure that's not an exhaustive list. I'm just, these are the ones that are top of mind that that my network has been talking about recently. And as a lot of times I get the call of, hey, do you know of anybody that might be interested? And it's interesting because it got me thinking about the role and it got me thinking about our our work over here to train the next generation of health leaders. And I I wanted to have a discussion with somebody. You happen to be here. So you and I are going to have this discussion. It's not as obvious as it once was like who the next round of CIOs are who are going to step into these roles. Has the role changed? Are we not developing the next generation? Or are are there other things I'm not looking at here that doesn't make the reason that it's not obvious who the next generation are that's going to step into those roles? I think it's a combination of factors. Certainly in much of my time for healthcare, particularly when you engage with health IT staff, executives, 
the CIO was seen to be the pinnacle role. That was the one everyone was aspiring to at some stage in their career. It's not the pinnacle anymore. Is that what you're going to say? I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure people see it that way. I think I agree with you. Well, there's a lot of other roles now, right? There's a lot of other roles that I think have a lot of appeal. If you just look at kind of around the, the IT executive suite, I mean, some would argue the CISO role and the importance that cybersecurity and the posture brings an overall health system, that has graduated into becoming a, a, a board level role or certainly a, a role that reports to the board very frequently. They're being asked to consult very regularly on like what's going on on the current cybersecurity landscape and tell us how we're impacted if at all. I mean, I just can't tell you from my standpoint how frequently I've spoken to the industry about what we know about Ukraine and Russia from a standpoint. And that's just like broad briefing updates. So the CISO role has elevated. It's now board level conversations. It's the CISO who's actually there. Because in our case, a lot of times it used to be the CIO giving the CISO's report to the board. And that's not the case anymore. Not the case anymore. Healthcare is a laggard when it came to digital transformation, but they're definitely going through that journey right now. So there's a significant investment in how do we reshape our care models? How do we embrace digital from online or home health or telemedicine? How do you want to frame that up in terms of enhancing and augmenting our care provision? And a lot of times those initiatives are being led by chief digital officers, chief innovation officers, roles that I think now are dedicated to these these activities, but I think used to, or historically were kind of housed under the CIO uh, role uh, previously. And I think those are the, for lack of a better way of putting it, that's probably the more interesting, innovative part of that of that CIO role. And all of a sudden that part, that part potentially has moved away or, or has moved away. And I think lastly, when the CIO role was really exciting is when we went through our last phase of transformation and the whole meaningful use digitization of the patient record, the EHR, and that CIO played this pinnacle role of driving the health system from essentially a paper-based system to a digital system and had this kingpin position, made a lot of strategic moves and, and investments in helping the health system uh, embrace this new way of recording the patient record. But I think now that that role has moved into an operational role or we're moving into a 2.0 EHR role, which again is an operational sort of transformation role. So I just wondered what degree the role has the appeal that it used to, even though it's still in title in many cases in reality, the pinnacle of the IT organization within a health system. But there are also probably other roles that I think are equally interesting or maybe have greater importance. It's interesting because of the Ascension role, Eduardo Conrado is the chief digital officer, came in from Motorola, but he's on that executive team. When we go to JP Morgan every year, when I go to JP Morgan every year and listen, he's up there on that board. He's one of the few, if, if I thought about it, he's the only technology and digital person who I've seen at that outside of John Halopka. John Halopka went there for Mayo as well. And those are the only two I can think of. Everybody else is the CEO and the CFO speaking to that group. And so he's very much a part of the strategy that Ascension is is moving forward. And the CIO reports into that role. And I think they actually 
and I'm not even sure what that role or title is for Eduardo, but I think they've actually gone out and hired a digital person, somebody from, again, from outside the industry. And so that sort of speaks to, I think, what you're saying here, which is, is the CIO role becoming more operational? It's, hey, keep the data centers running, operationally keep them secure. The CISO is becoming more strategic, but there's still a uh, an operational team within the IT organization that has to implement a lot of these things across the board. So it becomes it becomes more of an operational role. With that being said, I was in a room with 13 CIOs who have all sorts of consonants and vowels that have been added to their title. It's <laughs> CIO and CDO and yeah. C, CIO and chief innovation officer and, and those kinds of things. So it's it's interesting. I, th- I think you're, uh, we're seeing this thing go in a lot of different directions, but the large, large, large organizations have split up innovation, digital, and the operational role of the CIO. Right. It'll be interesting to see if anybody wants to step into those roles. Those are th- There's not a lot of love in those roles. I mean, you just the, keep the data center up and running, keep the EMR running, keep all the points of integration functioning, and uh, make sure that you support the digital, the new digital foundation with the, the, the right data and the right APIs and all that stuff. I mean, it's just essentially what you're saying is we want you to be the plumber and the electrician of, of healthcare. Like just stay, stay here, but somebody else is going to be the architect. Somebody else is going to be the designer and the painter of that building. And you're just going to keep, keep everything running. I, I hate to say it that way, but it's a good it's a good depiction though and i think it it explains why those roles maybe don't quite hold the appeal they used to yeah it's interesting we'll get to our show in just a minute as you've probably heard we've launched a new show town hall on our community channel this week health community and it airs on tuesdays and thursdays i'll be taking a back seat to some of these people who are on the front lines town hall is hosted by an array of talented healthcare leaders who are facing today's challenges head on. We're going to hear from professionals and their networks on hot button issues, technical deep dives, and the tactical challenges that healthcare faces. We have some great hosts on this. We have Charles Boise and Angelique Russell, data scientists, Craig Richerfield, Lee Milligan, Reed Steffen, who are all CIOs. We have Jake Lancaster and Brett Oliver, who are CMIOs, and Matt Sickles, a cybersecurity first responder. I'd love to have you listen to these episodes. You can subscribe on our community channel, This Week Health Community, wherever you find and listen to podcasts. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, let's talk Let's talk about privacy a little bit. So privacy is one of those things we don't really end up talking about a lot. We talk about security when you and I get together, but this privacy aspect really has, has caught my interest lately. The Verge wrote an article and what Beckers does is they essentially summarize articles for us so that we can digest them really quickly. This one is most mental health apps have exceptionally creepy privacy practice reports fines. And Mozilla went out and they looked at 32 32 mental health and prayer apps, interesting category. They found 29 required a privacy not included warning indicating concerns about how user data is managed and shared. They talk about the fact that it's just creepy how they're collecting this data and sharing it. Things like intimate personal thoughts and feelings, moods, mental states, biometric data, 
The team found that they collected large amounts of highly sensitive personal data under vague privacy policies. They also found most of the apps have subpar cybersecurity protocols, including allowing users to create accounts using weak passwords. And they close with this. Mozilla Reports said Talkspace, BetterHelp, BetterStopSuicidePray.com, Youper, and Wobot are the apps with the worst privacy policies. For example, Wobot collects data about its users from third parties and shares user data for advertising purposes. And Talkspace collects its user chat transcripts and uses that information. Mozilla said it reached out to these players after they did this yeah. report. It's interesting. Privacy to me is, is really interesting because it starts with that really, hey, click this box for our terms and conditions and our privacy policy. And how many of us actually click on that privacy policy, go and read it and go, eh, I'm not going to use this app based on this privacy policy. And the answer to that is very few of very us. Few. And I guess the question I have is, if it was obvious, if the app actually said, hey, we're going to take this information you're going to give us and we're going to monetize this information through advertising, da, 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 da. would you like to continue? I think that would change the behavior of a significant amount of people, but it's, it's opaque. We don't, we don't really know what they're doing. And to a certain extent, it feels to me like the user community has gotten complacent and essentially almost expects you to use our data in ways that we, we just sort of blindly trust because there's nothing right. we can do about it anyway. I, I think a couple things here. One is, of course, of the old adage, if your app, map. If you haven't given them money. Then you are the product. Then you are the product. You are the product and your data is funding their business model. And I think a lot of people understand that and, and frankly are okay with it. I'm calling you, I'm, I'm from Silicon Valley. I live in Silicon Valley. I talk to a lot of these organizations in a business context and in a social context very regularly. And someone from a privacy standpoint at a very large tech firm that a name that we would all know did a great way of explaining to me their viewpoint of how, how you look at privacy. And the reality is if you deliver value, they, the perception is from the Valley, if you deliver value, people are okay with the privacy exposure. So let me give you an example. If you're searching for say a, a new car, right? You wanna buy a new car and the next time you log on, you see these banner ads for new cars, you're like, eh, that's not a great, you know, clearly somebody has been eavesdropping on what I'm doing. That isn't a great experience. So I'm like, I'm not entirely happy with that. Fast forward two days later, and you log on to your, your email account, and you get a little pop-up that says, oh, you're on Southwest tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., time to check in. You're like, oh, well, I want to be on the A-list. That's pretty cool. Thank you for that, Mr. App. I'm going to check in now. And both examples are privacy violations. They're not violations, but they're examples where your privacy has been impacted. One delivered you a not a very valuable experience, so you didn't like it. One delivered you a valuable experience. You thought, that was pretty cool. I want more of that. And I think the more we do that, the more we log, we walk into our car and we put our phone down and, and the car recognizes the map navigation. Oh, you! I think you're going to work now or you're going to Starbucks or you're going to... So I'm going to load that into your map. You're like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. I like that. So I... I 
it feels like privacy is one of those things that is very has different viewpoints from different people. And I think for the most part, if you were to look at people's viewpoints about privacy anonymously on a let's say a document or whatever, or a survey, you could almost you could almost make a bet, pretty confident bet, that based on the answers, guessing the age of the of the person who responded to the survey because those who are a little bit older have a much dimmer view about some of these privacy violations. Those who are younger, like, eh, it's okay. It's just the world we live in now, right? Yeah. I have a friend who says Google is not a search engine. And I said, what, what do you mean it's not a search engine? It's like, that's, that's the facade, but Google is an information tracking engine that then monetizes that money in any number of different ways. Yep. And and I said, what's, what's your, what's your premise? And then they lay out some of the business models that, that Google has. And I'm like, no. And he said, all right, so here's the other thing, the difference between an Apple iPhone and a Google Android phone, he said is based on the information that it tracks and, and uh, store and shares. And he began to show me the the, if you shut everything off for that Android phone to talk back to the mothership, it stores all that information. Yeah. And the minute it gets back on, it starts broadcasting all that information back out right. where you've been, what you've been, just all sorts of what you searched for, what you looked at, anything, you, any button you touch on that phone, they're essentially tracking. And again, it's all in the, it's it's all in the the purview of we're going to make your life better right you know do no harm do no evil we're going to make your life better and i don't i don't i think if people saw the profile and actually the example of this is facebook back in the day took all the information who your friends were and all that other stuff and they would say likely voting profile or something like that sure and you sit there and go, well, that's interesting. I mean, it, I guess if we all thought about it, it's like, of course they can make that generalization. The people right. you hang out with are probably similar to you. This person posted this kind of stuff. Therefore, you, you are probably of that ilk or think that way right. based, based on this data. They build out some pretty detailed profiles of who you and I are. Right. If you look at just those two companies side by side, and if you look at their business models, you get a pretty clear indication about their motivations for data collection. Company A, Apple, like they essentially want to sell you more things. They want you to have the new iPhone, the new iPad, the new AirPods. They want you to have their arcade services, their music servers, services, TV plus. Their collection of data on you is about selling you more products. Very clear. Google essentially can't sell you anything. There's very few things from Google you can buy as a consumer. So their data profile mission is about collecting data on you so they can use that data to resell on the open market. As you go back to the news story here, there is a, and this, this event here happened a few years ago, but it's, it was pretty well documented. So there was a website similar to the mental health website you, re you referenced called Patients Like Me, right? And I think you remember this website or not, but it, the idea was if you had an ailment, you were able to go on to this website anonymously and 
and share your experiences and get consultation and find a kindred spirit with somebody who who's going through what you're going through. It's very useful service is my understanding. Yep. But what happened was they had a breach and there was no really way, my understanding, for the bad actors or from a hacker to understand who that patient or that person was from the data they collected from a patients like me. But when they aggregated that data across multiple platforms and start building that jigsaw puzzle together, they were able to, to identify, oh, yeah. that's based on that puzzle, that puzzle piece from here and this from Facebook and this from Instagram and this from Google. It's like, ah, we now know who that person is. And there were some patients who were exposed. And so moving from privacy to security, there is a there should be a great concern about, about the security vulnerability of all this, even if you're from a privacy standpoint, you're maybe have a more or less a fair attitude depending on your age towards these things. The security aspect is still strong. Let's bring it back to healthcare. And I, I don't want to hit on this too hard, but a bunch of my data is being used by health systems and they are essentially monetizing that data. They are, for the good of mankind, they are selling my data to research, to pharma, to others. And they're creating a new billion dollar organization from that data that they've collected about me. I guess my question on the warning label would be the same thing. If they had said to me, hey, we're going to collect this data from you. Are you okay with us selling it at a later date for a profit? I'm wondering, first of all, that would would make the job of the nurse really hard because some people would just say, no, I'm not giving you that data. And they go, well, we can't care for you effectively if you don't give us the data. And then you go, well, okay, then don't sell my data. All right, well, then you have to go through this special entry point in order to make sure that your data doesn't get sold somewhere somewhere down the road. And with this, this specter of de-identification in place, I, I worry, there's part of me that wants to log into my chart and see a little warning there that says, hey, we noticed that one of your systems participates in the selling of data. Would you like us to, to give you the option to opt out of that information being used in that entity? But they never ask. No. And so from a healthcare standpoint, it feels to me like we should be held to a higher standard than big tech with regard to the use of that data because it was given at a point of vulnerability for me. I was vulnerable. I needed your help. I gave you the information. And now you're going to use that information to to make money. I may agree with it, by the way. You're going to do research for the good of mankind. I might say, by all means, go for it. But I at least want to be given the option. You want to be given the option. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I hear about these sort of uh, kind of like tangentially go go answer the question about these applications or these startups who want to go spin up a their paid for versions of Gmail or Google Maps, and the idea being you pay for that service on a subscription basis, and what you get out of it is the same same experience, but there is no data collection capacity, and. Would the, is there a business model for that? And right now, I don't see it. I think people want the free service. Yeah. And so that kind of makes you think if, if in, until we see some traction on those sort of services be, being consumed, maybe in healthcare, people are just not going to tolerate or people are just going to go with check the box. Yes, you're selling my data. I know that. I don't like it. I'm not going to really argue about it. 
Well, let me ask you this one. This one's really close to your wheelhouse here. Apple, Google, Microsoft team up on passwordless logins. Do you see a day where passwords are gone, where I, we don't need passwords? I, I think that's one of the biggest vulnerabilities, by the way. I mean, the easiest way for people to hack a health system is to just ask somebody for the password, they get in, and then they just escalate permissions along the way. That's been the traditional path in. Do you think there's a way that someday my nurses will not even know what their log, their password is, and still we will have a secure way for them to access the systems? I mean, yes and no. <laughs> I cover all the bases. Yes, do I see that day? Absolutely. Should it happen? Absolutely. Is the functionality capability there to make it happen? Absolutely. But we are talking about an industry that still has pagers and still has fax machines and still has Windows 95. I, I knew you'd throw the fax machine at me. Those fax <laughs> machines are awesome these days. I mean, they... I know anyway. they are. It would be a very useful and vital next step. But like everything else that... It feels like healthcare has so many things on the to-do list. And I really... I'm a champion for healthcare. I really want to see healthcare make all the strides it needs to to better safeguard the industry because the industry has continued to be under assault. But, and, and things like this are important for helping the industry cross the chasm. But I just feel like there's just so many things the industry has to do. And I just want to see them keep making that investment. So I, I, I guess I'm, sure I'm sounding a little bit skeptical and it's warranted. Let me give you the example. So it's interesting to me, we were always pushed in both directions. Hey, keep the thing secure, but make it easier for them to use. And so we did Improvata across the board. And I remember the Improvata system uh, badge, you know, just touch, you know, touch your badge, you, you get logged in. And there was really two types of logins. There was the first login of the day where we would use dual factor authentication and you would, you would get in. Uh, and that login took about a minute uh, from the point we turned on the machine till the point you were in, it was a little over a minute or a little under a minute, actually, it was 50 something seconds. It was a little more cumbersome and whatnot, but it got you into like 16 different systems with just that touch of the badge and, and the second form of authentication. From that point, for the next six hours, you were authenticated. You could then badge in and badge out of machines throughout the throughout the ED or throughout your clinical rounds or whatever you're going to do. And those were sub 10, 10 second logins to the second and third time. And I think the timeout was either four or six hours on that before you had to dual factor authenticate again. There's this, there's this balance we have to be cognizant of because if I did, Hey, look, we're taking away the sub 10 second. And every time you log in, it's going to be a 55 second ordeal. I think they would have, I would have to hide or change my identity before I walk through the hospital. I think they would have taken me out. So <laughs> there's, there's that balance of things. Passwordless, passwordless access to systems seems to me something that would be advantageous that, that the system would want to adopt. I agree with you because there's a lot of, it's a couple of, first of all, it's, it's one that we could all identify with. It's a benefit we could all say, okay, I can see where that impacts my life in a positive way. So I think it's an easier sell compared to other technologies or other sort of safeguards that need to be put in place. This, this should be one to be easier to convince the health system and the clinical teams in particular about why you would do that. So I, I think there can be some more traction here and we should be focusing on this. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Hey, the last story, and we're not going to get to talk about it, but uh, I'll, I'll give you the last word on it. Apple has spent decades building a walled garden 
it may be starting to crack. And they talk about the EU's going after Apple Pay right now. U.S. lawmakers are looking at similar laws. And uh, the walled garden is being seen as anti-competitive. And it's not letting people in. It's not creating a free marketplace uh, of, of different apps and those kinds of things. And they feel like once Apple Pay is set up, there's no other pay you can really use within there. And they want it to be open and accessible to others. Is this the beginning of the end for the walled garden or is the, the ease of use and the functionality that they build in because it is a walled garden and the security for that matter going to win the day? I'm talking to guys got at least two Apple photos in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I made the move a long time. In fact, that's the original Apple. Look, I, mean, I think Elon Musk tweeted about this yesterday saying, that the Apple ecosystem is essentially equivalent to 30% tax on the internet. The point being is that if you if you need to utilize iOS to get to your app or whatever, you pay this other app vendors pay this huge premium to be on that on that environment to be in their metaverse if you want to call it that. Is it a problem? I understand why it's a problem. I understand why it's the walled garden could be crashing down, but it. The other thing I think here is like the Apple user, as I think you're kind of showing here as well, they're very loyal. They like the experience. They trust Apple for the most part. They they see Apple as kind of like one of their most primary go-to vendors, the vendor they, they probably admire amongst the most. And so I think the user base is very happy with the experience. And like you, I find myself giving more and more of my business to Apple. And I don't necessarily want to do that, but I do trust them in a way that I don't trust my other IT vendors. I don't have the same sort of affinity with my IT vendors. So from a user standpoint, I'm kind of more and more saying I want to embrace it. Although I think regulators might have something to say about that. And it is anti-competitive potentially, but it feels like more and more the way companies like Apple try to get around these anti-competitive feelings or sentiment is they, they broaden their ecosystem in a way that it's hard to identify them as being anti-competitive. So you know, they got into the Apple Fitness app. Well, I mean, there are a lot of other bigger fitness players out there. They're going to probably bring out a car at some stage or so it appears. I mean, there's there are other, other larger, much more established car vendors out there. So they kind of broaden in a way that they don't double down and like build out their ecosystem. I mean, Apple TV Plus has made great strides in a couple of years, but it's hardly on the scale of Netscape, Netscape, sorry, uh, Netflix, or even Amazon Prime for that matter. So uh, is it truly anti-competitive? I don't know. The regulators have something to say about that, but I don't know. We'll, we'll, see, how, we'll see how that one works out. Yep. Again, you get the last word on that. I, I'm looking around, looking at all the Apple devices that are within a stone's throw of where I'm sitting right now. And uh, I don't know if I can be objective here. One of the things I do like is the fact that they have really advocated for privacy and to be able to do some of the things on that phone and know that I'm going to talk about trampolines and I'm not going to see an ad on my computer when I get back to my computer on trampolines and go, how, all I did was say that in a conversation. How did that end up right. in a search? I think Facebook acknowledged in one of their quarterly report. So they lost about $10 billion of revenue when Apple made it aware that you just, they could opt out of the, the tracking on Facebook, right? So I, I, I don't know, that's kind of a good thing. As a user of Apple products, 
I think it's a good thing. I like the ability to be able to opt out of these tracking devices, and I do it all the time. Yeah, me so. too as well. As always, it is always fun to talk to you, and I, I want to thank you for, for your time and look forward to our next conversation. It's been great, Bill. Talk to you soon. What a great discussion. If you know someone that might benefit from our channel from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note, perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to a show just like this one. It's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com. They can also subscribe wherever they listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast. You get the picture. We are everywhere. Go ahead, subscribe today. We want to thank our Newsday sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders. Those are CrowdStrike, Proofpoint, ClearSense, Meditech, Cedar sinai Accelerator, TalkDesk, and Dr. First. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.